Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Amen, amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. God, thank you for reminding us already this morning of your great love and care for us. God, I don't know who needs to hear this in this room or watching online that they are loved. You love them. You love them with an everlasting love a steadfast, faithful love. They are loved and they are not forgotten. They are not by themselves. They are not isolated. They're not alone. That they are loved by the Creator, by you, our God, our Savior, our King. And God, as we transition from worship through song to worship through your word, God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that has changed from the inside out so that the world around us will see Jesus within us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, good morning. Say welcome, all of you joining us online as we continue through our series here in 1 Peter. Before we get into our text today, which will be quite an unusual one, I do want to make a quick announcement about an event coming up that we're really excited to be hosting. It's called Global Leadership Summit, and it is a conference summit all about leadership, leadership in your home, leadership in your business, leadership in your neighborhood, leadership in your life, and we're really excited to be a host site for that uh, event this uh this August coming up, and we wanted to make you guys aware of this event coming up so that if you would um, be praying for that, first of all, for that event, that it would be used to glorify Jesus Christ as it equips people in the areas of leadership. Um, No matter where they're at, no matter where we're at, we have influence, and influence is leadership, and so we're really excited to host, and you guys are invited to be a part of that, and if you want more information, we're going to be sharing more information uh, coming up, but there is a little flyer, a little handout that you can grab out at the welcome desk, out in the lobby on your way out today, give you a little bit more information, show you the website that you can go to. If you'd like to register for that and be a part of that, we would love to have you, all right? So Global Leadership Summit coming up in, uh, um, in August. All right, okay. We're coming to the end of chapter three in our study in First Peter, and we come again to a text uh, that is not easy to understand or for me to explain. The text is widely regarded um, by biblical scholars as one of the most perplexing texts in the New Testament. Yay, I'm glad I came to church today. <laughs> I'm glad I picked this week to teach. <laughs> Tyler. <laughs> Martin Luther, the German reformer, he said this about this text. He says, a wonderful text is this in a more obscure passage, perhaps, Than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not for a certainty know just what Peter means. I cannot understand and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. Should we stop now and just pray and go home? Because that's what I felt like after reading his quote. I'm like, if Luther can't do this, I don't have a I don't have a chance. Another commentator said his words were no doubt clear to those who first heard them, but they have been hard for later generations to understand. 
Now, now, as I was reading those quotes who were giving me a lot of motivation to keep going and studying this text, um, I want to point out something that Peter says in uh, the second letter that he writes to the church. It's in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, just as a quick little funny to give you some insight about Peter, all right? So this is what he says. You don't have to turn now. I'll read it to you. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter is commending the, the writings, the letters of Paul to his readers, but then he adds a little comment about, by the way, the stuff Paul says sometimes is hard to understand. Can you imagine Paul reading that and thinking, oh, Peter, did you forget about some of the stuff you wrote? Especially this text here in, in front of us today. So here's my disclaimer. If Luther didn't know, if other biblical scholars and commentators were not completely, absolutely sure, then we should come at this passage with a certain modesty and humility, okay? And that's what we're going to do this morning. My, my focus for us and my hope is that, is that we, you know, we don't get bogged down with that that we can't fully know and miss truly the power and the majesty of what Peter's saying to us. So remember... Peter is writing this letter to suffering Christians. They are suffering for their faith. And, and if there's one thing that brings all of us together, it's suffering. It's a universal experience for every person, everyone this side of eternity, right? Because we live in a broken world. And Peter's been talking about a certain type of suffering over the last couple of chapters. Suffering because of your faith. Suffering because of your stand for the gospel in Jesus Christ. And so our text is intended to be really a text and a passage of encouragement, not one that, that discourages because we don't fully get it. And so I pray that we not lose sight of what this passage is intended to do. And I want to give us four headings to look at this text. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, the last part, 18 through 22. And here's the first heading, Christ our substitute. Christ our substitute. Look at verse 18 with me. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Let me point out first, Christ is not only our substitute, but he is our example too. If you look at the last verse of last week's study, verse 17, Peter wrote this, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And right after that, we pick up what he says here. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So he's not just our substitute. He is our example, right? Christ is one with us in this experience. Praise God. It's wonderful that the one to whom we pray, that we just prayed to, the one to whom we have hope in life, hope where, whose grace we depend on, who we walk uh, with, he has walked where we walked. Right? He has lived where we live. He has suffered as we suffer. We don't seek help of someone from someone who is unable to understand our experience, but, but is a fellow sufferer. Christ is our example, but he's our substitute as well. This verse is one of the most clear gospel statements in the Bible. There's a uniqueness. There's a purposeful character to the suffering of Christ that cannot be said of any other suffering, not my suffering or yours or anyone else's suffering. In fact, Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 talks about this, reminds us that unlike the earthly priest in the ancient times in, in the temple in Jerusalem, 
who, according to the code from Leviticus, Levitical code, they offered a sacrifice every day. Christ has entered once for all. It's the same language, isn't it? He's went into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves who have been purified, but by means of his own blood, securing eternal redemption is what Hebrews tells us. So the death of Jesus has a unique character. It's the only once-for-all sacrifice for sin. No other is needed. No other so-called sacrifice of the masses, right? Not any religious sacrifices we think we may offer to God in our worship or in our giving or in our praying. Not our goodness, not any words that our hands may perform. Christ's sacrifice of himself is, only, is the only sufficient sacrifice that meets our need. This one-time, unique, set-apart suffering. And, and not for his sin, because he was without sin, but for our sin, right? The righteous for the unrighteous. We're the unrighteous. He's the righteous. Jesus for us. Luther calls this the great exchange. He was put to death, is what Peter says in this, in this verse. He was put to death. Why why death? It's the culmination of Jesus' suffering, right? It's the culmination of his suffering. Why was this important? Why was this important for Peter to, to show us and to teach us that he was put to death? Well, because we've already been taught, as the Scripture teaches us, the wages of sin equal death. The curse of sin equals death. His death is verification that he, he has borne that for us. He has taken that for us. So when Jesus on the cross said, it's finished, he meant it. He meant it. So that he might do what? Look at the verse again. He might bring us to God. What's the result of all that he's done? The result of that is that we would have a personal relationship. We would have the acceptance with holy God. The Lord of lords, the king of kings. The creator of the universe. Sovereign God almighty by the work of Christ. Adopts us into his family, brings us into his family. And then he becomes our father. Praise God. Now, why is that important? You might ask, okay, why is this important? Again, remember who the letter is written to, but also think about our own lives and how we live our lives for Christ. These were people who were being mocked, they were being rejected. He wanted them to reflect on this awesome reality of their lives, even though they were misunderstood, even though they were mistreated, even though they were mocked, even though they were ridiculed, even though all these things were happening to them because of their faith, he wanted them to be reminded, you have received a glorious, wonderful acceptance, the most wonderful acceptance that any human being could ever want, that any of us could ever want. They had now had the acceptance of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. You and I must never get used to that. We must never get used to that. We should, we should never take that for granted that we have been accepted into God's presence as His family because of the work of Christ. If you are a believer, preach that to yourself over and over and over. God loves me. God has accepted me. God parents me by His wisdom and power and grace. I have been adopted into His family. Praise God. And we never take that for granted. And here's why. Because one of the best defenses against the fear of man, 
One of the best guardians against the idolatry of acceptance and respect that tempts all of us is to find rest for our souls in the acceptance of the Father. We don't need to look for identity. We don't need to look for acceptance. We have it. Our identity and our acceptance because of the work of Jesus Christ. And I don't need to go out there needy, begging for someone, somehow, some way to offer me a reason and a meaning and a purpose because I have it in Christ. And will it hurt when people mock? Will it hurt when they reject? Is that pain real? Of course it is. Because we were meant to be in community. We're social beings. That is painful. And so we need to guard ourselves against the temptation to ride the roller coaster of people's responses. As if the condition of our soul was dependent on that, right? It's not. Because what? Because why? Because of this verse, Christ purchased our acceptance. And our acceptance is eternal. Christ is our substitute. Our acceptance is not based on what we can do, what you can do, what we have done, or what you and I can promise or will do in the future. It's based on one thing, the finished work of Christ. Know this. Understand this. Have this. Give us ears to hear, God. Give us a heart to be transformed. And then Peter reminds us of God's vindication of Christ, right? Look back at our text, one last, the verse 18. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Christ was vindicated in the resurrection. Christ the rejected one. Christ the one who suffered, as Peter said. The one, the one who had injust, no greater injustice than that moment The only perfect person to ever live and walk the earth is tortured and killed, crucified, murdered as a criminal. But he was vindicated by what? By the power of God. The one who died on that cross by the power of God rose again from the grave, vindicated by God's power and God's plan. So with that, Christ is our substitute. Let me give you the second one. He's also our preacher. Christ our preacher. Keep going with me in our text, verses 19 and 20. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now we come to the part of the text that's caused the debate, the discussion where we raise the eyebrow to say, what is Peter saying to us? And my honest answer is, I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. Neither did apparently everybody else. (laughs) But I will share with you what I think Peter is trying to declare to us in the short version. It's that Peter is saying that Christ through his spirit was preaching through Noah during Noah's disobedient generation. Just as he preaches now through through us to ours. Noah preached for 120 years to his generation and no one listened. Remember who Peter is writing to. Remember the audience, okay? Noah preached and no one listened, right? And Peter's saying, don't be discouraged if sometimes we get that same reaction that Noah got. God eventually kept his word to Noah. God brought salvation. And we can be confident that he'll do that with us. He'll keep his word. So by 
By that reading, you could read verse 19 this way. In his spirit, Christ in the past proclaimed the gospel through Noah to the spirits, the souls of people who are now in prison. They're, they're in hell. They're in, they're in judgment, condemnation, away from God because they didn't believe Noah's message. And he's saying, but don't get discouraged. God eventually brought salvation to Noah's day, and he'll bring it salvation in ours too. I keep saying this, remember the readers and what they're experiencing. I will give you this a little bit of background. Noah and the story of Noah was widely known and believed in Asia Minor in that time where this was all taking place. They knew Noah. They knew his story. He was, he was widely known and regarded. He was almost like a legend to them. And so they would have picked up on this really fast. They would have understood what Peter was saying really quickly because they knew Noah. They knew what happened. They knew all about Noah. Um, and so Noah, and Noah again, he kind of had like this legend status. So, so remember that they are, what they're experiencing is something similar. They're trying to live out their faith but they're being mocked, ridiculed, rejected, suffering for that. So having told us of the ministry of, of the Spirit in raising Jesus from the dead in verse 18, Peter wants to encourage the suffering church in his day as he wants to encourage us to courage, encourage us to stand strong, reminding us that in, there was a time in human history when the world was known for its unbelief, for its wickedness. And if you study that time in, in Genesis, if you study that, you'll see just how wicked the world was. And so he takes them back to the days of Noah as he takes us back and he says, and the work of the Holy Spirit then as though to say to us what the Spirit did back then, he can do again today so that we don't give up hope, that we don't stop living on mission just because we're not seeing the response or the reaction of the multitudes coming to Christ not to give up. Now more that Christ has risen from the dead, even, even so. So the, the days of Noah provided him this incredible illustration, right? Noah's time was marked by immorality, unbelief. God's believing people were very few in number. That's how his readers were, were, were experiencing life. They were universally mocked. They were ridiculed for their faith. Nobody believed a flood was coming. Nobody. Nobody. And yet Noah faithfully obeys God. Peter actually brings Noah back up in his second letter. Second Peter, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he calls him the preacher of righteousness. So, so Peter uses Noah repeatedly to teach principles, biblical principles. He preached that God is just, that Noah preached that judgment is coming on the world in the form of a flood. But there's an ark. Listen, there's an ark to which you may flee for refuge. Come, take refuge. God has provided a way of escape. To escape the judgment that's going to come. That was his message. Christ was the preacher. And preaching through Noah. By the Holy Spirit in the face of dark, unbelieving generation. When Noah almost alone <laughs> proclaimed the truth. He did it enabled and strengthened by the Spirit of Christ. Christ our preacher. Again, think about Peter's generation facing widespread persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel, proclaiming the same message, wondering in what strength, in what power can we see the good news of Christ advance? We feel small. We feel weak. What can we do? However, can we make a difference? 
And so Peter gives them the reminder of Noah. He reminds them of the days of Noah and how Christ, by his spirit, proclaimed the gospel in the face of darkness. And, and although many did not believe, he's saying, don't be surprised. If people don't believe, some did, and they were saved. Christ, our preacher. Let's keep going. Christ, our rescuer. He's our substitute. He's our preacher. He's our rescuer. Verse 21, as he continues, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just point out, as we're going to talk about this, because that seems really against all theological positioning that we would have about baptism. Look at what he says, though. Now saves you. And he comes really quickly after that, okay? But he saves you. Look at the last part of the verse. I just want you to see this. Now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right? So the deliverance of Noah, who believed God and found refuge in the ark, and so was saved through water, Peter, Peter says, is mirrored in the rite of Christian baptism. All right? So think about this. The same water that brought judgment in the days of Noah also brought salvation. In the, same, in the same way that water brought judgment, it also brought salvation as it floated the ark above the, the flood. All right, and so Peter now, he, what he just, he, and he knows what he just said probably misunderstood and applied incorrectly. And so he qualifies it. Look at it again. Baptism now saves you. And he adds this real fast. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's virtually a definition of baptism. We believe baptism is an outward expression of a spiritual inward appeal to God for cleansing and change and transformation. That's what we believe baptism is. It's just a proclamation of what's happening on the inside, right? It's that appeal to God in faith. So, so in other words, baptism is a way of saying to God, I trust, you know, I trust you to apply the death of Jesus to me for my sins to bring me through death and judgment into new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 4. He, Paul would say that to us, right? Buried in death, raised to newness in life. So baptism may cleanse the body because it's by immersion. But that is not what he says it saves. It saves for one reason. It's an expression of faith. It's an appeal of faith. Paul says in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Baptism is this calling. It is this appeal to God, it's by faith alone, and it's that proclamation of faith. John Calvin famously said, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are visible words. I love that. He meant that the message proclaimed by the word of God, read and preached, and the message proclaimed in bread and juice and water of baptism are the same message. He meant that you don't get something in the sacraments that you don't also get in the word. You don't get a different Jesus. You get the same Christ in both. You hear the word proclaimed, spoken in Holy Scripture, read, preached, and you see the word and handle the word and taste the word in the sacraments. But it's the word. And the way they work, the way you receive the benefits of, of both forms of the word, the word written and spoken, the word seen and touched and tasted, the way you receive both benefits is exactly the same. You receive it by faith alone. A few weeks ago, we had the privilege 
and the grace to witness beautiful baptisms in front of our cross. And if you are not able to be here, let me show you the video. Check this out. That was a proclamation of faith. That was a proclamation to everybody who drove by that day that saw us all standing gathered out there, who took the time to look over. That was a proclamation of their faith. In faith alone were they saved, and they proclaimed it in baptism. So in your own baptism, however many years it might have been, decades maybe, we're still preaching to you the good news about Jesus calling you. All of us, that day we are with him to repent of sin and to believe in the gospel. It continues to preach. Jesus is the ark of safety. He is that ark. Peter was trying to make that connection. Get into him. He's the way of escape. He's the only rescuer we need. There's a flood of judgment and a righteous judgment that's coming. Jesus is our rescuer. Let's get the last one. Jesus, our victor. Christ is our substitute. He's our preacher. He's our rescuer. He's our victor. Look at verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him under his authority. Imagine the encouragement to the suffering church. Surrounded by skepticism, mockery, opposition, mounting suffering for the cause of the gospel. Imagine the encouragement to be reminded that seated on the throne of glory is the one who gave himself for them in his love for them. The Savior King, the Lamb wins. That's the message. That's the message. And so he wants to say to the church, you can stand firm in the midst of this because you know Jesus Christ has already won the victory over principalities and powers, demonic and angelic and earthly. For that matter, he reigns now as king. 
So the question is not, do I trust Jesus Christ, the King, to overrule, to reign in every situation, in every suffering, and in every success for my good and His glory? We know that the answer to that is already yes. So therefore, we press on through suffering, if need be. We speak for Him. We live for His glory. We risk everything. Because there is no risk in his service. Because he reigns. Let that sink in. The victory's already won. We could not, we could not be more secure than we are now. Christ our victor. May God help us to hear to the praise of his great name that Jesus Christ is our substitute. That he dies that we might live. He is our preacher who preaches in our preaching, who witnesses in our witnessing. He is our rescuer. Get yourself to Christ, the only ark of safety in Christ is already our victor, and we can have confidence in him. What a beautiful name in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, God, we are pray we are humbled overwhelmed by the work of Christ that Peter has shown to us in this text he has taken our place that we deserved he's our substitute because he loves us he preaches through us for his glory and the good of others because he loves us he is our rescuer from the flood of judgment, righteous judgment that we so deserve in our sin and our rebellion. But he rescues us. He is the ark. He is the safety. He is the refuge. He is the rescuer because he loves us. And he's victorious for his glory and our good because he loves us. What a beautiful name is Jesus. What a beautiful name. God, I pray every time we hear that name, it moves us. It should stir us. God, help us to never get over the name of Jesus. Help us to never take it for granted, speaking to each other the name of Jesus. Help us to never become numb to the name of Jesus. Help us. Help us when we hear his name, when it's sang, when it's, when it's shared, when it's spoken, that it stirs the reminder, the strength, our identity, our acceptance, our adoption, our eternity being secured, that it sets us free to risk everything for your kingdom and the kingdom to come. God, that as we walk home to you, that we witness in his power. We proclaim in his steadfastness. We glorify Jesus in all that we do, inviting everyone to join us. So we walk home together. God, you have the glory. May Jesus' name stir us because it is beautiful. We pray this in his name. Amen.